Creating better businesses with Discovery Business Insurance. Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthy Business Show brought to you by Discovery Business Insurance. Today, I'm thrilled to chat with Niket Desai, who at 23 sold his company to Google and now oversees a $120 billion fund in Silicon Valley. In this episode, Niket explains how he created his MVP or Minimal Viable Product. This is a technique in which a new product is developed with just enough features to prove the concept. Niket, so good to hear your voice again. So good to have you on the Healthy Business Show. And good morning. I believe that it's uh, it's bright and breezy in, in Silicon Valley right now. It's 8.15. Everyone here is getting excited to be building stuff. Okay. Happy to join you this morning. As they seem to be doing all the time in Silicon Valley is is building stuff and getting excited. I wanted to use this opportunity just to really zero in on um, on product development and the idea of an MVP and and why it's important. But can we just touch upon you know what we're talking about there? What those early days were like being a student and and having an idea and bringing it to fruition and uh, and how did that what did that look like? Yeah, you know. I was born at a very interesting time because it culminated with the iPhone coming out while I was in university. And in many ways, I actually think that a lot of entrepreneurs are a product of timing of events like this, where something important happened in their life that then gave them the opportunity to pursue something. So for us, that was the iPhone. You know, I was midway through university and the iPhone had come out. And what appeared like a fancy or next generation telephone to everyone else to tinkers around the world, both outside of university and in university, what Apple had released was a computer that happened to make telephone calls. Mm. And the app store and subsequently people creating, you know, custom applications and companies creating applications on that platform didn't even start until a full year after the phone came out. So it was like t- well, it was was 2007, right? Around about there, 2008. Right. That's right. So 2008, the app store had come out. So, you know, if you're sitting around in university and you have the fortunate ability to access one of these devices, which I did at my alma mater, which is uh, University of California, Berkeley, you had this opportunity as a student that had very few things to do, one could argue, as an engineering student, to think about how you might use a computer that happens to make telephones in the world. And then tipped off by a dear, dear friend of mine, Reed Morse, who was an engineer down at another university that we had met about his idea to help small business owners manage their loyalty programs using a a phone application. And he had prototyped something called Punched, which was a company uh, that we would go on to make, but it started as a very simple idea, which is to take those buy 10, get one free cards and put them on your phone. Okay. We had more grand aspirations of what it would be like if everyone had one of these devices on them at all times and how it would change the way we all interact with one another and the way that we interact with even stores and commerce. So the area that I had fallen into was thinking about what would life be like if everyone had some sort of iPhone or iPhone equivalent and what would life be like in terms of everyday purchasing and going and about your day and it being enabled or potentially even bettered by something like this. Sure. I mean, before that, I mean, before people were were using apps, I mean, you had those kind of buy one, get one free little cards and, and the little booklets and all that sort of thing, right? So it was really a 
taking something familiar and and creating an interface for it with this new uh, platform. Yeah, and in fact, Reed's professor who challenged him to come up with a service to write, uh, I believe, you know, was an entrepreneur himself. He actually mentioned that specifically. He called it turning something from atoms into bits. So the idea was to take something from the real world that exists with a known use case and a known value mm. and converting it into a digital format. Sure. And I suppose that familiarity gives you that head start, right? But it's just converting it to a different medium. That's right. And that's helpful because in a world where you can do anything, right, because in theory, you could write any program you wanted, of course, it would have varying amounts of effectiveness. Those constraints of, of looking at what people actually do in their day to day and then trying to come up with a better version of that, but bound within those behaviors is a surefire way to at least build something that a few people will really want to use, if not many. Sure. And I guess also tapping into the extraordinary capability of all the sensors on this new phone. So you all of a sudden you can track things like location and and uh, and and gather data over time to, according to your behavior, which you can't really do in the the atoms world, I suppose. That's exactly right. So the atoms world, in many ways, is all about elite operation. It taps out at a certain level because you can only functionally carry out operations on physical stuff. But in the digital world, we can test the same sets of, of information and processes in many different ways to see what's the best. And so, you know, the uh, in our context, when we were building Punched, this, this loyalty program, you know, it really was based on this idea that, hey, everybody already does this. Our point is that it's kind of an incomplete solution yeah. because businesses want to attract more customers and they put all this stuff out there. But this phone allows you to connect with your customers at any time, whereas a card in their wallet you know, is a static item. If you're lucky, they open their wallet and see it and think to themselves, oh, I should go to that store. A phone can quite literally give you a notification on behalf of that store. And we thought that was just a, you know, a shocking idea. You know, we we're very young, but the fact that we thought that stores could send notifications to customers about deals or, you know, happy hours or events, mm. we just thought that had to be the future. We just weren't entirely sure how it would look. So Reed had already, he had already prototyped this thing. And, um, and I believe it was Xander and yourself and Reed who got together and, and created this company. What, what were the different roles with the three of you? Yeah. So, Back in the 2010, 2009, 2009 timeframe, there was this trio that was becoming popular, which was the hacker hustler designer. And the idea was that if you had each of these archetypes at the beginning of a company, it would represent the many tensions that you would need for a company to succeed as opposed to just build a product. And so Reed was our hacker. He was, you know, an adept software writer. Xander was by far the best mm. product designer, the which designer. is now what we call it. Yeah. And Reed had actually went to a to a show for an art show at Cal Poly, which is where he went to school. And he noticed that everyone had some pretty good stuff, but that one designer was just heads and leaps beyond anyone else. And that was Xander. And he felt very strongly that if you didn't have proper design elements and, and human based thinking in the earliest parts of building a product that it would never ultimately be that useful to regular humans as opposed to more tech savvy folks. And then 
I was kind of the switchblade, uh, the, the, or the Swiss Army knife, I should say. The, the hustler essentially is trying to fill the gaps between those two things. So, sure. you know, in many ways, I represented anything that wasn't purely about design or purely about program or architecture. And, and what that did was, in many ways, is that I spoke on behalf of the business itself, okay. uh, which kind of elevated this from maybe just an application that humans could use to maybe an application that could turn into a company because there was a revenue model and, and a way to grow there. Oh, that's amazing. So, that, I mean, that hacker, hustler, designer trio, is that still a popular model to uh, to deploy when, when creating an MVP? I think that, you know, again, you have to just be very careful about how those things are defined. But the idea is that you want to put in some amount of effort and thought into each of those constructs before you can really reach an MVP. And so just to call out design, you know, I think a lot of people misconstrue design as, you know, does it look pleasing? But there's a lot of products that I've seen that look pleasing and have no utility. Design is fundamentally about ensuring that you're actually approaching the problem from within the context of the people who have to use it. And so to give you just an example of that, one of the big learnings that we had taken away was, you know, we, we were able to uniquely at the time build not only good software, well, decent software, I shouldn't say good, but software that actually looked pleasing and was effective and had great, you know, what they would call user experience. Yeah. The thing was, one of the biggest learnings that we had was you really, really need to study and work with the people who are going to use your software every day to understand their workflows. So if you're a busy person running a small you know, shop that maybe sells pastries or coffee, which was kind of our target customer, sure. you'll find that those owners don't have time to be sitting at a computer looking at the statistics uh, of the customers that they have. So mm. whereas, you know, it's easy to go and say, hey, your cards have no digital components. They're very dumb. You know, all you do is stamp them and hand them out. It turns out that it was the perfect user experience for people who are really busy and won't really be on a computer for any part of their day. Mm. And Xander and I ended up rebuilding the company, or I should say the product around text messaging, because we realized that our dashboards, while fantastic and <laughs> and really powerful, the, were the co not going to... Exactly. Nobody was going to see them. Yeah. Exactly. And so that is a good example of why having that design empathy at the beginning of the building of a product can be useful because you can get on track much more effectively earlier and spend mm. less time wasting resources, which we still manage to do. And I suppose, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose that process is is really about not just design, but it's about understanding and listening and, and being empathetic and really tracking each and every single touch point of your, uh, your customer's journey through the use case of this product, which, by the way, I mean, I suppose, you know, we've got to understand that it's not just the end user use, you know, the, the voucher, in your case, in Punched, the voucher, but it's also in primarily the business owners and the vendors who, uh, who are dispensing the vouchers. So that's where you really needed to get stuck in and take a magnifying glass and understanding all the nuances behind that behavior, which is something I think we forget to do. We make so many assumptions. And how important was that in terms of testing and iterating? I mean, was that part of your process the entire time? I would say that we learned 
this along the way. I think what any builder type that can build tends to do is they have an idea and the funny part is it appears more fleshed out than it actually is. So in their mind, they see this complete idea. But in the real world, the tangibility of that complete idea has many risks because it's embedded with many assumptions that they may or may not have verified or tried to remove. And so because the first version of the product was so fundamentally simple, we were able to escape getting too far. So the first version of the product was quite simple. You would just scan a QR code and based off of you being at that location approximately, it would say this person's here and a punch would occur. And that's it. We'd register that into a database. So where, where, for instance, our first assumptions went awry was as soon as people said, yes, this seems interesting, let me use it and started to use it at um, one of the local Jamba Juices at Cal Poly, which is a kind of a smoothie company. Yeah. our next kind of thought process was great. You'd probably want to give all of this data back to the client in this case and, and let them see just how their program is doing. And the assumption was not actually that clients didn't want to see how their programs were doing. The assumption was that they'd want to see first a highly visualized um, GUI for that. So, mm. you know, fancy graphs and things yeah, like that. Pie graphs and, and bar graphs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the irony of that situation was if you're a company that can afford, and, and I'm speaking within the context of small, medium sized businesses that sell usually food, something like that. You know, if, if you're sufficiently large that you have, you know, a person that's in charge of marketing, that person's not serving the food. They're not making the food. So they actually can go and log on to a, a service and look at the fancy charts and then make kind of organizational and marketing decisions. But the vast majority of the people that we sold to, they were owner operators. And so the irony was that we didn't test the assumption of how these people would consume that stuff. So when Xander and I ended up sitting and camping out at a coffee shop over the course of two to three days and saw that this owner essentially from sunrise to sunfall didn't look at a computer, Mm. we quickly realized that building a fancy laptop dashboard was perhaps not an incorrect approach, but it was out of order. So we switched everything to become a text message. So you would just get a text on your phone every day that would just say, here's how many people punched in that day. And here's one thing you could do, you know, the next day or the next week that would improve the amount of people giving your punches because they had their phone on them at all times. That's amazing. So you you basically just switched it around and, and gave them the least that they needed to know that was useful and in order for them to take action, which I think is is the perfect example of iterating in terms of that design process and uh, and catering it for your customers. So Niket, you were on this process of creating this elegant product and you know, getting through to, you, you started to grow. I'm guessing part of your role was to, to start to, you know, achieve the, a sense of growth and bring on board customers and uh, spread this this product far and wide. When did you realize that there was real traction here and that you had a, a you know, a real product that was, was starting to do well? I extrapolated in my head, what would it look like if everybody was using this daily? Mm-hmm. Because it occurred to me that the vast majority of people had to eat at some point during the day. Yeah. And Luckily, you know, that was my baseline thinking. But I I did feel that every person 
that could get a better deal or a better use of their dollar spend would want to do so. The challenge was maintaining essentially coupons or these cards was not possible for most people. But that if a phone just handled it for you automatically, or in this case, a computer that happened to be a phone, Mm. that everybody would opt into that. Mm. So intuitively, just thinking about it without looking at any of the ground realities or tangible outcomes, it just felt like there was something there. Mm. The way that I actually realized it could be something was it was originally only used down in San Luis Obispo, which is a small college town south of Silicon Valley. And I basically went to a coffee shop in my neighborhood in San Francisco and offered this product and said, would you be interested in this? And the owner at first was kind of skeptical, but when I sat down and talked through it with them, he said, let's give it a shot. And this is uh, our first San Francisco operation was called Cafe Capriccio, which is at uh, 2200 Mason Street in San Francisco. <laughs> and he, I'll still never that forget. That is amazing and, that you remember the exact address. That's so cool. You know, I, I think most entrepreneurs will remember the early days because of how unrewarding they can be in that it's everything is so difficult. And that's why I also think that entrepreneurs that become successful, they yearn for the early days because it felt so impossible. And then now it's just this machine. But, you know, when I saw him using it and I saw customers actually legitimately getting excited that there was a service they could use instead of putting it another card into their wallet, they essentially were Uh, parroting our value proposition without any type of marketing, which was, you know, on the customer side, it was like, I don't have to carry another card. I'm not going to forget to do this. And on the, on the business side, they were like, our customers are excited. They want to come back. They like that this service is something that they can use here. Mm. And I just called Reed in almost unbounded amount of excitement. I said, hey, I don't know if this is going to become huge, but I definitely know it's going to be a thing because <laughs> people get it and yeah. they're using it without us instructing how to use it. Sure. So you you kind of, it felt like you'd found a puzzle piece and you'd found a, a perfect gap for that piece and you put it in and it just it fits seamlessly which is i suppose for any entrepreneur just such a beautiful feeling there's that feeling of of satisfaction which is it's just so cool to see your product being used out in the wild and was there a point that you you saw this thing really start to take off yeah you know at one point we were being used in like 14 countries we didn't set boundaries on our growth. So when we talk about early products, you know, I often think that a lot of products are correct. Mm. It's just that they were built in the wrong order or the potentially the wrong time. So like a good example of this is that we went and built what I would call an enterprise level dashboard at a time that most people just needed text messages. You know, we brought essentially a missile to a knife fight. You know, it just was way overbuilt. And I think entrepreneurs often think that they kind of fail in two ways. They either underbuild something that needed to actually have a greater amount of of integration and things like that, or they overbuild things that actually just needed a very simple but sharp entry point. Mm -hmm. And in our case, we had overbuilt. And I was really proud through what was an unfortunate iteration because you're throwing away a lot of work or at least temporarily suspending it, just realizing no one was going to use that. And if I, if I just sat there and watched the customers and the clients use this more uh, fully, I wouldn't have made that decision to put in all that work mm. on dashboard creation. And your role was really to to grow the um, the user base, right? As the hustler, 
in that trio of hacker, designer, hustler. So you had this product, it was being used, and sure, it was overbuilt, but what did that process look like of trying to achieve the growth and getting it into new markets and and trying to get that that real traction? Yeah, it is real hustle. Uh, my goal every day was to speak to 50 businesses for which usually I would get turned down 45 to 47 times. 55, zero, that's insane. So you were contacting them? Every day. And how, on the phone? Yeah. Were you, you emailing them or what? That's right. I would call, I would email, and I would walk the streets usually. I would do some combination of all three. Hmm. And I would try to get lucky where an owner or a very high up person in that organization would be working. Mm. And I would try to meet them around 1.30 to 2.30 because that's when they would be closing or would have low traffic. And what I found was every morning, if you try to catch people before lunchtime, they would be preparing for the rush. And so the only time you could really speak to someone for 10 to 15 minutes was after the lunch rush and right before closing, before they had to go through their closing duties. So I had a limited window of approximately an hour every day I would spend in San Francisco walking into every business I could in order of on the street and cover large swaths of San Francisco. The other thing I would do is, you know, is talking about hustle, hack, figure out how to make things work. Yeah. Is at the time there was a popular service called Foursquare. Yes. Which was in its, again, its early days. And one of the things that was really nice was that the way that they had created their service was you could easily page through their businesses. So I wrote a quick thing that would page through all the businesses they had in San Francisco and look at how many people were interacting with that business and whether the business was signed up on Foursquare as an owner or not. Mm. And then when I walked into the stores, I would tell them, did you know there's 2,000 people talking to you about you on the internet? <laughs> and they'd be like, what? Where? And uh, that's amazing. There's a service called Yelp. There's all of these things that are coming and you're woefully prepared the to manage is, it. The train is leaving. Yeah, for sure. That's such a beautiful sales sales hack. And that's exactly it. And it was that. And then the other, the other, I, you know, I, it was, that was a very effective one. And the other effective one that I had was I would ask these business owners or managers, I would say, do you know how many customers you have? And, you know, it, it kind of sounds like a ridiculous question because mm. it seems so obvious to, that, that someone would know that. But if you actually think about it, if you run um, a hero shop, uh, you know, on, on Kearney Street in San Francisco and, and you ask them, you know, how many customers do you have? They'll be able to tell you how many uh, falafels and things they've sold you, but they're not going to be able to tell you how many customers they have. And that was a unique value proposition yeah. that we were trying to bring to them. And we said, if you understand that, then you can guarantee the number of people that come in every day because we can help you with that, which means that you can understand how much you can earn every day, which means that you'll be able to figure out whether you're going to be able to turn on the lights on tomorrow or not. A lot of people don't appreciate that these small businesses, uh, they're not cash rich. You know, uh, a couple bad days, a couple weeks of bad, of, of bad sales can actually end them. And so th- that was something you can only learn by really going and talking and listening to customers. It's such a beautiful lesson. It's also, again, it's age old practice, right? You go in there and you, you provide value straight off the bat, but you're giving them 
you're giving them knowledge that, you know, they should have, but they, they didn't have, which was integral to their business. And so, Niket, I mean, obviously now this seems like a real value proposition. And uh, and despite the fact that it's, it's proper hustle, you were starting to make inroads. At what stage did you start attracting the attention of Google? I knew things were getting serious when we started closing chains. So a couple things that occurred. The first thing was, as we moved beyond SMBs, back to my point about the right product at the right time, that often most people are actually right about the product they build. They're just incorrect in the way they built it, in the order of priorities or the general timing. Our dashboard ended up becoming a big hit with colleges because colleges would manage uh, marketing campaigns for the various food and beverage places they managed on their campus mm. where they would have centralized marketing. So some marketing coordinator for each of these schools would love Punched because they could run campaigns with students to increase engagement between their offerings and, and the people who buy things. And they would need these centralized dashboards to actually show that it was working and to help them tweak their things. Mm. Same on the business side, you know, companies like Jamba Juice proper now would come to us asking to white label the service potentially. And we look at massive partnerships like that. So we went from kind of building this tiny one-off thing at a college campus and then kind of testing it in San Francisco to, you know, now we have chains with seven, eight shops signing up all at once, a great yogurt company in in the Midwest, uh, you know, obviously massive uh, companies, even like U.S. Bank was talking to us about partnerships. So I knew things were getting really big because all of a sudden we were having to make decisions on what kind of company and strategic approach we were going to take to the business. And usually when you're making macro decisions like that based off of real client demand, mm. you have found some level of product fit. The challenge then becomes which of the clients should you go after? It was around the same time that that had happened that Google had reached out to us. Originally, we had thought to invest in us as part of our fundraising efforts uh, as we became kind of a more uh, venture-like company. And they were interested in expanding the charter of their Maps program. So everyone knew Google Maps it kind of displaced, you know, MapQuest and a few of these other people as the de facto standard of great direction-based services. Sure. Their belief was that it could be way more than just directions for people. It could be on par with what search was in the in the physical realm that sure. it would contain. So, so like a a functional platform with just a, a whole host of added value services that punched would be one of them, right? That's exactly right. They wanted to use maps as the foundation for owning physical commerce. And that was, you know, when you talk about aspiration, this is in 2011, you know, they're some of the biggest thinkers in the world. And so the challenge with that, ironically enough, is that maps, roads, directions, scale, very quickly. Mm. Reaching business owners and convincing them to get onto a platform and to engage with their customers using a variety of tools is a patently non-scalable problem in the early days. Mm. And so we were situated because of the work we had done directly with these customers to build services and products that were not only correctly built for them based off of the realities of their businesses and life, but also our expertise in mobile first uh, approach made us uniquely suited, it turns out, not to just take an investment from Google, but to actually be acquired 
and injected into their product building process. Okay. So they didn't just take a bite out of you. They, they bought the whole thing, right? That's ended up what happening. Yes. Okay. And so, so you, you were then, you were basically taken into the belly of this very fast growing beast. What what was that like? I mean, did, because ostensibly now all of a sudden you were exposed to some of the smartest thinkers in the world who had their own product development capabilities and systems and functions and all that. Was it just this incredibly steep learning curve? Was it a total eye-opener or was it not as spectacular as that? What, what, what was that like starting to work with, with all these amazing people? It was awesome. Um, <laughs> I, it, I, I kind of figured that would be the answer, yeah. Yeah, you know, it felt like going home because you were surrounded by people who were like you, talented, curious, helpful, friendly, but ambitious strategic. They cared deeply about the work that they did, the software that they delivered. We, in many ways, offered to them a better lens into the world because, you know, when you're at a place like Google, especially at that time, they were far smaller than they are today. I think today they're in excess of 250,000 people. Mm. The thing is that you were the cream of the cream of, of, of builders and you were working on high scale problems, you know, challenges where billions of people were at, at, at play. For us, ironically enough, our expertise of just really understanding business owners at a ground level was, I would say, on par with anyone, at least at that time. And that's because that expertise can only be gained one way, and that's to walk the streets and to, to say, build the, very small. These are guys who are building behind giant screens, and you you are actually you know, hustling, beating the streets, and going in and shaking hands with the people who are are going to be their clients, right? Or going to be Google's clients. That's right. So that knowledge must have put you in such a, a, a great position. And I would tell, you know, any entrepreneur that I think if you're an entrepreneur and your aspirations is to go build a company like Google or to join and work there in some capacity, you know, we often get excited about the macro ideas, the the next thing or the big thing. But all of these ideas started at some point with just the basics of walking the streets and making sure that what you're building is fundamentally important to one person in an extraordinarily large way. Mm. Because if you if you don't start with that, then you don't have the foundation and to build something that can be quite important for many people. Yeah. And it's in my humble opinion. Uh, but I, I think that is such a universal and beautiful lesson. It's it's that thing of creating something you know, so many entrepreneurs have this wildly ambitious goal, and it's great to have that. But it's that first step that's the most important because that's the thing that you're going to repeat, right? So you start small, create a small audience of, of customers, and then you can then repeat that once you get the model right. And that is when the scale happens, right? And I think so many people start to create a, a much broader canvas, and uh, and it's it's not it's not at all manageable from the beginning. I mean, is that me reading you right in terms of interpreting what you're saying? No, that's exactly the direction that I think everyone at one point took. And Niket, did you work with Larry and Sergey? We had, well, I would say we had some interactions. We, <laughs> Reed had built this April Fool's joke that it caused such fervor that it had to get approval at the highest levels. And uh, <laughs> that was one of the ways that we interacted with them but can, can from you tell our us what it was can you remember oh no i definitely know it you know, we were building a uh, so morse reed his last name is morse his uh 
great, great, some degree of great uncle was Samuel Morse, the inventor of the, of the Morse code. And so oh, wow. the joke was, yeah, it was, you know, he comes from a, an esteemed family of inventors and, and observationists. But he, we were making a joke about building a Morse code entry keyboard for Gmail called Gmail Tap. And <laughs> it had all sorts of issues related to doing that. And so the irony was that in the ways that we wanted to work there, uh, you know, I think we taught their maps and geocommerce division, not only how difficult this was, but they they realized how important and vital this was going to be too. And so mm. our impact or influence was to, and I'll never forget, I'll give you an example actually. So speaking about the lack of scalability of reaching small business owners, there was a exercise done where all of the products were put up on a wall and the signing, what they call the onboarding process, the sign up process was listed. And the question was, what was the start to end time to complete the onboarding process? And the vast majority of the products had multi-step, you know, multi-hour sign-up processes and punched was one of the unique ones. I think ours was under five minutes. Oh, wow. We beat everybody's by a lot. And that's a good example of, again, you know, when we talk about product iteration, that was Reed, Xander, myself thinking about what exactly do we need to know from a client to get them started? How fast can we get them started? We were thinking about the end-to-end flow. There's a gentleman named Rick Boardman, who was a former Google user experience director that had worked with us and went through our sign-up flow. And I remember well, that we call this getting Boardman. He just absolutely thrashed us. He, you know, he <laughs> Googled us, couldn't find our website. Then through the website process was trying to sign up and showed just how little thought we had put into it. And so we, we worked from the beginning again to say, if I was a business owner and I learned about our service, what is the fastest way from that person to go from learning about our service to actually getting their customers punched. Mm-hmm. And that was a process that we did. And, and, and we did that so well that it allowed us to actually grow very quickly at the time. And, and, and that was one of the things that unlocked us from what I would call a product into a company. Mm-hmm. And we were able to take that with us to Google and actually a lot of their signup flows uh, were inspired in many ways by uh, some of the work that we had done to speed things up and wow. to make things simple. That's truly, truly amazing. I mean, so so I want to fast forward a little bit then in terms of, okay, so you, you're now, first of all, let's just clarify, you're also really young at this stage. I mean, you're, you're sub 25. How, how old were you then? Yeah, I was 24. Okay, so you're, you're 24 and you've, you've just kind of gotten into uh, the the greatest company on the planet at that stage because then you you yeah. made a, a a career move to um, to go across the world to go work at another one of the fastest growing companies on the planet, uh, Flipkart. What was the motivation for that? And I mean, obviously, it's quite interesting for me asking you now because, you know, India is is somewhat more similar to the African region or the the African context than Silicon Valley at the moment. So what drove you to, to go to India? Honestly, it was a challenge of a lifetime. When you think about the whole world, there's kind of a lot of opportunity because everything that's been built digitally in one place most likely must matriculate to somewhere else. And e-commerce in the way that Amazon transformed the United States and the way that JD, Alibaba and these other impressive companies transformed China, there was this understanding that a company born in India would transform India. Mm. 
and take the masses of people and bring them into a quality of life that was now, you know, similar to that of its Western counterparts. And so not only was it a huge opportunity, but also the opportunity to learn. You had a company that was experiencing what most people classify as intense growth. And we felt that the toolbox that we had been given from places like Google, we could use in a, in a country, in a company that was experiencing those massive things that we could come in and use tools that had been tested for and, and, and actually survived that kind of growth and, and then help it grow as well. So it was the opportunity of a lifetime, ironically enough, in terms of impact, but also mm. at learning. And that is a very rare thing. And you might get one or two of those in your lifetime. And I just said, I have to go. And that was that. I, I mean, I'm fascinated. You just for clarity, you were one of the then appointed one of the most senior people at Flipkart. You were you were chief of staff. Seems like you've gone from product development now all of a sudden to people development. Why was that? I mean, what was the sort of thinking behind that? I think if you think about any company, its output is a function of essentially how good all the people you've hired are multiplied by how in sync and well-prepared and supported they are. So in many ways, building products, the abstraction of that is actually building organizations. And Mm -hmm. as a founder, anyone who's a founder, they're ultimately responsible for the organization. Mm -hmm. You can be poor at many things, but you have to decide what your culture is. You have to decide the types of people you'd like to work with. And you have to then decide how those two things work together to execute strategy, product building, delivery, sales, et cetera. And so in many ways, when you go and you become a chief of staff, the amazing thing about companies like that is that the product talent engineering talent, sales talent, it's so incredibly high because of its stature as a company and its brand recognition that what's as important, I should say, is developing systems that help fully unlock those people. Mm. So in the early days of my work there, I was asked not to go and figure out how product should work or do any of those types of things, but to say, how should this company operate to better maximize the usage of the tremendous talent and aspiration available there, which it had by far more than anyone in India at the time. Wow. Well, I mean, that's just a beautiful challenge. And so what are the most salient lessons that you learned uh, during that time? Does anything pop to mind in terms of stuff that potentially and, and selfishly from an African perspective that you believe uh, that we could deploy in our own, uh, in the own development of, of entrepreneurs here? The thing I would say is, you know, as an American coming, even though I have an Indian heritage, coming to India and working within the Indian context means that you have to pay attention to what's going on. So there's this concept in the U.S. military and the Marines called an OODA loop. And so that's O-O-D-A. And so it stands for observe, orient, decide, act. Mm. And Wow. The, that's it, such a beautiful framework. Yeah, the reason why they say that is that everyone has a plan. So, you know, as Americans coming from one of the greatest American companies in the world and you know, we have a, a healthy amount of ego, I would argue, and we have tools and we have success. And so we, we bring these ideas over hoping that they can be translatable very quickly. But when things go wrong, when things don't go to plan, this is essentially how the Marines train is that they have these OODA loops, which is to quickly observe what is actually happening mm. and then orient yourself to that reality and then decide how you'd like to act against this new orientation and, and of, of reality and then act accordingly. So, you know, 
for us, there was two aspects. The first was that the work culture and norms of Indian workplaces, while going through a transition to what I would call a better working style, was still split between this new tech process and the old school kind of things that people learn from kind of more traditional companies, which is where a lot of people from these places were hired. So that's one part uh, area of things to consider. The other was building products and services that are uniquely suited for that region. So to the same point about studying your user Mm. and really deciding whom you're building for and in what order. So a lot of our core business came from the upper class of India. So these are people who had nice phones, who could support a heavy application, who didn't have to worry about data usage and stuff like that, right? So a large amount of our efforts would go into reducing the package size of these builds that got sent to people's phones because in the US you don't really think of data as a as a as an issue. Yeah, for if sure. you have a 100 megabyte product it, it's not going to be an issue but there we were working on kilobytes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's not that they didn't know that but you know, we had to reorient ourselves. So, one of the things I'll say is that when, the thing that I would take away in the African context is that Again, there is going to be workplace norms that are just uniquely African and even subversions of that, obviously, depending on where you are. And then the other thing is, is that the people with whom you aspire to serve, they are very unique. You can't just take American or Chinese or European ideas and bring them there and just port them. You actually have to completely translate them. And that's at yeah. a personalized and a, and a localized level. And that idea seems so obvious and so simple, but is utterly missed by so many people. Mm. It's it's almost like an expectation for some of the big companies and the big brands for the the local community to adapt to them rather than the other way around. But that leaves an opportunity on the table, right? That's right. And if you really focus on that, you actually will have knowledge that will make you more effective and more competitive ultimately against any incumbent that's coming in because the localized context is very difficult to manage because it has, like I said, two frames. One is the way that you deliver the products or services you hope to give and to whom those people ultimately land in. And so most people focus on the latter because they focus so much on the client that they don't realize that if you can help transition a localized workplace norm from kind of what used to be to this kind of new modern version, that translation is worth a lot. Entrepreneurs that are working in these different contexts, your tools for building products and services are all the same, but the amount of attention you have to apply on making sure whether it's applicable is where you'll get great reward out of it. And with that in mind, uh, Niket, and we, we, we're going to have to close up now, but, you know, taking all those experiences in India, is there any, any salient lesson that, that you or, or advice that you have for, for, this, for the African context and, f- and for South African entrepreneurs in particular? My, you know, the big macro takeaway, I would say at first, is that the opportunity for Africans to serve Africans in every context of what you see in the rest of the world is paramount. And that's because whereas the two largest economies that are focused on within the tech context being India and China are being served by countries and and corporations from other countries, Africa doesn't have that type of investment yet. 
And that actually suggests to me, which I felt very strongly in India, that India would be served by a uniquely Indian company. That that opportunity and therefore that entrepreneur, the Larry Page of Africa, that whomever, Jack Dorsey, whomever you aspire or, sure. or want to emulate, is there today. And they have this opportunity to use their localized knowledge multiplied by a tenacity for building something for people, really listening to them faster and better than anyone, and then actually growing that economy locally. And while other people will come, they won't understand how and why things work, even though they'll have success that they're trying to translate from where they're coming from. So that's the first thing that I would say. And the second thing is, you know, in the context of building a product, it's like you have to know who's your customer and what order should you build things in? Because if I could go back and redo what I had done, I would have done things more or less the same way. I would have just changed the order of what I built. And that goes back to really working with your customers and understanding their needs and being open-minded so that you can build the right thing in the right order. Because everything we did ultimately in one way or another in today's economy exists. And so to some degree was quote unquote correct. But if we didn't pay attention to what people really needed, we probably wouldn't have put it in the right order which is something that we needed to do as well. I love that, Niket. And it's it just speaks to this ongoing focus of really listening and understanding and seeking to to first understand your customer. And uh, and I, I particularly love the uh, Let Africa Be Served by the Africans. Niket, thank you so much. Best of luck and to everyone out there trying to build stuff. Stay focused. Awesome. Go get it. Awesome. Thank you, Niket. And we'll chat soon. Cheers, my man. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Healthy Business Show. If you love this podcast, do let us know via social media, tag at discovery underscore SA. Use the hashtag DSY Healthy Business. And please do rate us on your favorite podcast platform, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your shows. You can also find more shows on the Discovery website at discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts. Creating better businesses with Discovery Business Insurance.